Mm, are you ready, Ma? I'm ready, Aaron. Let's go. Let's go with Gone with the Bushes to, well, when the movie first starts, okay, this was a little confusing to me. <laughs> and I actually went back and said, where is this movie set? And it said, it said in America. Yeah, this is America. This is the, an American story. <laughs> it, when it first opens, we are in New York. I think most of it, we can just say New York, but it, it's, you know, we go different places. This is right. A very important part is in Colorado. Yes. Okay. Black and white movie. Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane! Is it not the movie of all movies? Is it not like the epitome of um, moviness? Well, you know, you're going to always have your contrarians out there. Okay, I'm, I, I, and I'm anxious for Erin in her uh, dirt alerts to tell us why this is the movie of all movies. I mean, look, I saw this movie because, again, yeah, it's it was number one on AFI's 100 films, 100 whatever. It's but when it came out, it was a dud. Critically, it was not a dud, I will have you know. Critically, it was lauded commercially it was a dud mm -hmm. and you know I'm talking money it's we'll get into it but there are some okay. reasons why it became a dud it's a reference it's on the short list you think ah i'm gonna make citizen kane it is if somebody put a gun to your head and said name the best film american film ever gonna throw in what and you would say citizen kane get gone with the wind it, it it's been a while see so i forgot all the all the problematic prob parts of gone with the wind okay moving on back to citizen king yeah citizen fucking king okay uh particulars please oh one second oh. <clears throat> citizen king 1941 it's Premiere was May 1st, 1941 at the Palace Theater and its release was September 5th, 1941 in the United States. It was oh, pre-WW2. Yes. It was directed by Orson Welles. It was also produced by Orson Welles. This was his first film. How old was he, Aaron? 25. 20 freaking 5. He was Orson Welles was big, big time into theater. He did a little um, radio, and he was also big time into radio things because radio was television of its time. So he was just entertaining the masses. He had a little little radio performance called War of the Worlds. Yeah, people thought it was real. People thought that it was like, re. it was super real. It was October 30th, night. Oh, well, where is that in my weird notes that I wrote? Flipping the paper around. Well, you know what? I'm going to... Ah, where of the worlds? October 30th, 1938. 38? So mm -hmm. Grammy was 27. Damn, she was old. 27 when that happened. She was 27 when World, War of the Worlds came out. Man, you're old. Well... Thank you. 
No, I'm, I'm just saying that's kind of crazy because Orson Welles was like, what? I mean, 20? He was real young because he was 25 when this happened and, 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 and that was before this. Yeah. So he had like, like just early turned 20s. 20s, his super early 20s. So Grandma yeah. was like looking at him like he was a millennial. Like yeah, these kids, kid. these kids today with their War of the Worlds is and these stuff. These kids today. She was probably they're... rolling her eyes at this whippersnapper. Participation trophies. Mm -hmm. She's like, get out of here with your aliens and your what have yous on the Truth radio. Told, they probably did land then. Ooh. I personally believe that the Trumpster is an alien. I've decided that. Okay, I would be very disappointed in that. I would be like, this? This? Well, that's true. This? That's true. You come at us with this? That's true. Okay. His, this is his first film. He went on to do The Magnificent Ambersons. It's All About Time. The Lady from Shanghai. Touch of Evil. And then... He did a whole bunch of movies that he started and stopped and never finished. There is a fantastic Netflix documentary called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. And mm -hmm. I highly recommend that you watch it because it talks all about his um, exile and stuff in Hollywood and kind of his later years and then how he was working on this idea for a film where he wanted to mix like documentary footage and shot footage into the story of an older an older director and a protege and it's very much like what the what's happening in the documentary and the name of the documentary I said they'll love me when I'm dead and it's also about because that was his last film that was called the other side of the wind and then on Netflix they have the other side of the wind which was his last film and it's crazy because you're just like oh my gosh this it's a really nuts film especially when you watch the documentary because it's just it's one of those things that just folds inside itself and you're like Orson Welles did you just pull off another war of the worlds on my mind ah yeah so he he does appear to have been a, a snippets of geniusness say it the man was a genius which is and and um so it's hard for regular people to you know to understand and to uh, identify i guess so but i'm not i'm not his friend i just like what did you come up with what he was 25 this? when he did the, okay this was his on. first movie he didn't know anything about it there's a quote because let me tell you the quote on the movie. Damn it, where did I write it on my weird piece of paper? She has eight squares. Have, she has I, to look through yeah. to figure out where all of the different things are. Because people were like, you're 25. Why did, what gave you the audacity to do such things? And quote, Orson Welles says, ignorance, ignorance, sheer ignorance. You know, there's no confidence to equal it. It's only when you know something about a profession, I think. That you're timid or careful he's like they're like how come you had the balls to do this and he was like i didn't know any better 
Like the okay, we'll get more into the particulars. It's so. sort of like the young gymnast who comes out and just takes over. Yeah. Because she doesn't know that she's supposed to be intimidated by this situation. Exactly. Like the director of photography, he wanted to work with him because he he just he wanted to, he saw what he had done in the theater and how his mind worked and he was super creative and so he wouldn't the director of photography wouldn't say anything he would just let him go about doing like he would have problems or he would ask the director of photography can you do this and if he had known anything about filmmaking he never would have asked the director of photography exactly. to do it and the dp like he just to himself he's like wow like he was like, yeah, okay. And so then he just went about it because he got to experiment and figure out the problems. And meanwhile, all the other people that are in his crew are like laughing. They're like, oh my right. God, he doesn't know. Like he was messing with the DP's lights and somebody went to the to Orson Welles, like kind of behind the DP's back and was said, hey, that, you know, you really shouldn't mess with the guy's lights. And, and Orson Welles didn't know. But the director of photography was mad at the guy that told Orson Welles because he wanted to see what he was coming up with. So he yeah. didn't really mind it. He was just like, this guy doesn't know. He, he's he's going to break all the rules. He doesn't know what rules there are. This is so refreshing. I love this. I say that um, in the classroom all the time. When kids laugh at somebody's answer, I say, uh, you, you just showed that you don't understand what he's thinking about. And sometimes I can see where that answer is. And sometimes the answer is really out there, but it still shames kids into not laughing at each other. <laughs> anyway. Oh, I, I love the, I love shaming little kids. It's right. <laughs> shaming when they're Moving young. on to the rest of the particulars. A screenplay by Herman J. Mankiewicz. Um, he wrote or worked on... The Wizard of Oz, Man of the World, Dinner at Eight, Pride of the Yankees, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and Orson Welles also worked on the script. Mm -hmm. The music was by Bernard Herrmann. He met Welles at the CBS radio show when they were doing their radio shows. Um, this is his first film score. He also went on to work on these movies, um, Psycho, Cape Fear, Taxi Driver, North by Northwest, Vertigo, wow. The Twilight Zone. The dee -dee 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 -dee. Yeah, Bernard. Wow. Well done, Mr. Hammond. Um, The editor is one Robert Wise. He also edited The Magnificent Ambersons, Seven Days Grace, I think, and Bombardier. Um, then he went on to direct, this is the editor, he went on to direct The Day the Earth Stood Still, I Want to Live, Somebody Up There Likes Me. And this is something to consider when you're like, why are people always talking about Citizen Kane is one of the best movies of all time? Because it was the first film score, we already talked about Herman Mankiewicz had his hand in Wizard of Oz. We talked about Bernard Herman, Psycho, The Twilight Zone. The editor of the film went on to be the director of West Side Story, The Sound of Music, The Andromeda Strain, and the first Star Trek film. That's Damn. the guy that edited this. Wow. Directed West Side Story and The Sound of Music. Wow. 
The DP, Greg Tolan, he shot Withering Heights, The Grapes of Wrath, The Best Years of Our Lives, The Bishop's Wife, to name a few. And we also have to give a shout out to the makeup guy, Maury Siderman, who just, like the shit that was invented, or not necessarily invented, because other things were going on. There are other movies and stuff that were using similar things. But for the sheer volume of just all the crazy shit put into one movie yeah. in 1941, I was yeah. gobsmacked last night. Just riveted. Like, this was 1941. It's one of those things, I think, that I can see people who you watch it and you're like, that's the best movie of all time, everyone says. But uh-huh. it's 1941. So a lot of the things that this movie did, you're used to seeing because you've seen it all. There, there are transitions that happen in the film that every, every Marvel movie starts with them. You're just uh-huh. used to this. It's, it's second nature to you. You're not, it, it isn't Dylan going electric because you've only known an electric Dylan. See, that's why we need that's why we need Erin on this podcast because she actually tells us this this the filmmaking part that, you know, just slips by those of us with lesser intelligence. Because of the movies that we've done, these are the movies that we have done that came before. That came the same year as this. Or okay. prior to 1941. Okay. We did His Girl Friday, 1940. Remember? Okay. We were like, oh my God, the camera did a tracking shot. Yes. Did one tracking shot in the film. And how many locations were there when you think about it? Pretty much one. A handful of locations, right? Yeah. Did we ever see the ceilings of, of anything? We no. we pretty much knew we were watching. It's, it's great fun, but the way everything shot, the angles... Right? Mm-hmm. The shop around the corner, 1940. Yeah, that was all in the shop. Mm-hmm. Or right outside the shop. Dinner at 8, 1933. Complete linear story, right? Yeah. All pretty much a play. M, 1931. Now remember, that had cool black and white shots. That had canted angles. We were out. There were locations. Mm-hmm. I remember that. You don't remember it. No, I don't. A Day at the Races, 1937. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, thank you for putting that in perspective. Wings, 1927. Yeah, that was the very first, that was the first Academy Award winner. It Happened One Night, 1934. That was a fun movie. But, my, yeah. My Man Godfrey, 1936. Mm-hmm. 1936, that's not... That's five years. Five years. Five years prior. Yeah. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, 1939. The Philadelphia Story, the year prior, 1940. Casablanca. Ooh. And, of course, Gone with the Wind, which was 1939. Remember that, the crane shot? How we were like, oh, my gosh. 1939, it was that crane shot. It blew my mind. Yeah. This was this Citizen was Kane came out yeah. two years later. Like your your mind was blown by that crane shot. Here, I got a little something for you motherfuckers. 
And then, just to put it in perspective, then you talk about a movie with a differing narrative style, how it would it told different perspectives. We did Rashomon, and that was 1950. That was nine years later. Yeah. Which was like, not just nine years later, but that was after World War II. And that's like, that was such an awakening. I mean, 19, yeah, that's huge. Mm-hmm. So Citizen it, Kane's before all of that okay okay i mean before rashomon but these are the kinds of movies that people were watching and you had you had other things on the fringes and stuff but for the most part this is what hollywood was making and this is what theater goers were coming so imagine that you saw mr smith goes to washington and now you're sitting down and you you better buckle your safety belt yeah so we have yeah. Orson Welles. He's acting in it. And he acted in Jane Eyre, The Stranger. Remember, he was in The Third Man. Remember how we freaked out over The Third Man? Yeah. That came out in yeah. 1949. That was eight years later. Yes. The, yeah, the shots. Yeah, the lighting and everything. Mm-hmm. The Lady from Shanghai, Touch of Evil, and Casino Royale. Joseph Cotton, he stars as Jedediah Leland. I love Joseph Cotton. He was in The Magnificent Ambersons. He was in The Third Man, Touch of Evil, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Torah, Torah, Torah. We had... And a gazillion other things. Yes. And I should also mention that, so this film, Orson Welles, he was given complete creative control. Casting, crew, he got final cut on it. How did he do that at 25 years of age? Because he's just he's just Mr. Irrational Confidence guy. He was Yeah, that's true. He, you know, he was just he's the guy that has great ideas and also as important or equally important, he was the guy with just as he, I guess he says the ignorance to not know that you're not supposed to ask for these things. <laughs> sort of like citizen kane himself yeah he's he's what how these guys have like these guys they operate on a different level from us where it's just they just have the hope his putzfah or the putzfah the shaputzfah yeah you gotta get some phlegm in there of of the guy to just he's i think that this is a good idea and i'm not gonna tell it you know there's male privilege in there too of just Nobody White says male no. privilege. Yeah. yeah. Here we totally. go. I'm going to ask for it. Why? I made War of the Worlds. I'm, and if if you don't like it, I'm just going to go back to theater. Because everybody says I'm really good at theater. I'm a, I'm a wonder kid. Yeah. Not really very good looking. Not, not very... Uh, uh, body image isn't a great thing for me. But yeah. I got ideas. And people seem I, to like them. That's right. It's all mind control. So so that he cast this with people. A lot of it, this was their first film. This was Joseph Cotton's first film. Um, Ruth Warwick? You Phoebe! Mean, why, do you, why do you know Ruth Warwick? Because I watched All My Children. She was Phoebe on All My Children. And Phoebe. She was the, the grand dame. And, of all my and in Citizen Kane, she was Emily Monroe Norton Kane. May I say, Gorge? John Foster Kane's first wife. Yeah. We had Dorothy Common Gore, Susan Alexander Kane. 
Yeah. She was his, she plays his second wife, who was based loosely on Marion Davies and some other people. And she was, uh, she was an uncredited part in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. She was said to have been discovered by Charlie Chaplin. And this was kind of her only movie because she was a casualty of the blacklist because William Randolph Hearst hated the film so much. I wonder why. And so he basically like ruined her, her career. Uh, she was ruined before, but yeah. And Agnes Moorhead, she played... Agnes Moorhead, do you know who she was? Well, she played she Mary the... Kane in this film. She was the grandmother in Bewitched. Mm-hmm. And she was also in The Magnificent Ambersons, All That Heaven Allows, and Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Yes. And yes. Everett Salone, he was Mr. Bernstein. He was also and he was great. The lady from Shanghai, the Desert Fox. Somebody up there likes me. We had George Corlorcus. I wrote that weird. Okay. He played the banker, Walter Parks Thatcher. Um, oh, Thatcher. Okay. I have never seen a list of like a filmography credit of films of so many films that I've never heard of before in my life. This man was always working, but just never in anything I've ever heard of. And I think I've heard of I haven't heard of everything, but I've heard of a lot. You've heard of a lot more than than, you know, the three of us who listened to you yeah and so i i mean i had to keep scrolling heavily until i came to arabesque and then he was uncredited in a clockwork orange he was really in, we have to do that sometime he was in but i'm so afraid papia how do you say it is it papillon or papia papillon papillon, papillon i think uh, but that's probably whatever wrong. fancy people which means know. butterfly oh really mm-hmm. oh and that Murder wrong, on the but... Orient Express. Okay. So those are the particulars. Wow. Well, just take a break now so that I can set the table. All right. Now, it is 1940 when the film opens. And then there is something that you read. What's that called? Something that comes up that you read. Oh. Sets the scene. Like, yeah. Charles Foster Kane, 70, dies at his Xanadu estate, uttering the single word, Rosebud. This is his life story. So it's a black and white film. Um, You start out with a, a black and white picture of a no trespassing sign and a chain link fence and then these elaborate gates. And they're monkeys. And you're seeing the estate, and there's really eerie music Well, playing. hold on a second. There's this whole thing is just, it's to set up how rich this guy was and how dilapidated everything is. Because I was like, there's monkeys. Yeah, there's monkeys because he had his own zoo. Right. Which reminded me of... Um, the Wizard uh, of Oz? No, it reminded me of uh, Michael Jackson's place. Oh, yeah. Never Neverland. Neverland. Neverland Ranch. Yeah, exactly. You know, when people have too much money, there were a couple 
times that it reminded me of Michael Jackson. Yeah, that's what this this whole opening is to show you just how much money this guy had. Exactly. He had a exactly. zoo. He had his own golf course. And now, oh, the, just pristine shots. Just, it's all visuals. It's all your eyeballs are getting so much information. Just being told this story of, like, he had a golf course. You see all of the the architecture work, and you're just like, my God, this man was loaded. And it's snowing, and, and there's a snow globe. He has a snow globe in his hand, and, and it drops, and then he says, Rosebud, because he's dying. The nurse comes in, sees he's dead. The nurse comes in from a trick shot that's reflected from the snow globe. I mean, come on. Who was doing this? I didn't even pick up on that. See, I need to watch the movie after we talk. Yeah. To be okay. like, this is 1941. Who is, who is doing this? They're not, they're not doing this. Then it cuts to a newsreel of people in like a, um, a newsroom. They are they are doing his obituary um, on film because they're doing those March of the Times things that they used to do in the 30s that would right. play in the the cinemas to tell you before the movie comes on. Yeah, tell you tell what's you, going yeah. on in the world. So the newsreel shows the building of Xanadu. Um, he uh, he was he went to Europe and he bought. So much stuff. If you ever saw the documentary with Michael Jackson in Las Vegas when he went shopping, I did. And he just walks into a uh, a store and he goes, "I want two of those. I want that." I, that's what he was doing. He sent all of this stuff back home. So many statues. Anyway, he had the world's biggest private zoo. They said it was the costliest monument man ever built to himself, which was rather telling. Mm -hmm. He was the greatest newspaper tycoon, so it really was sort of um, like a, a William Randolph Hearst type thing. Mm -hmm. um, some people called him a communist or a fascist. He called himself an American. And this, uh, this newsreel spans 70 years because then it shows when the Great Depression came and... Um, and he still he has no sense of um, a fiscalness. I mean, he just keeps spending money, whether he's got it or not. And the Great Depression comes, and people are asking him about a war in Europe because he just gets back from Europe. This is before WW one, and he goes, "Take my word for it. Read my lips. There will be no war in Europe." And then he's left alone and he's um, the direct feeling of an empire. And his last words on his deathbed are Rosebud. And then it goes to the men who had made up the newsreel deciding was this good oh, enough. Oh, but wait, wait. Also, just to drop in the newsreel to set the table, he is also, not only was he rich and powerful in that he ran this newspaper, which at the time, like, newspapers were in. He was basically like Murdoch or somebody, you know. He was able to, to sway opinions based on his journalism. 
He decides, of course, to get into politics, and he was going to be governor. This man was going to run the state of New York, and then he got caught in a scandal the night before the election. He got caught with his um, mistress. A sex scandal. Sound familiar? And so he lost, but he ended up marrying the mistress. They also mentioned that his first wife and son died in a car accident. They mentioned that. Did you ever see anything else about that in the movie? No, I'm going to bring that up. I was going to bring that up later. Yeah. Because, okay. Well, that's kind of important. Like, basically, this movie sets the table for itself. It does this newsreel about his life, and that's, that's everything. It tells you everything that you need to know in the movie. And then when they, when the lights come down, they're like, that's good. And they're like, yeah, it's good. But we need something to hook the people his last words, Rosebud, wh- what does that mean? And they're yeah. like, you, go out and find out what Rosebud means. So this guy, he has to go out and he has to interview the, p- the prominent people in Kane's life to find out what Rosebud means. And then when he interviews each person, we go back in a flashback and kind of see like peeling back these layers of this man's mm-hmm. life. So and the, that's how the story is told yeah. through other people's narratives. Mm-hmm. Which, for its time, not a lot of pe- not a lot of stories were told that way. It's right, full right. flashback, already telling the audience everything. You, your main character's dead. We know his last words. This is everything that's kind of happened. We're just going to drop in here and there on these little things. Yeah, yeah. So they go to the second wife. Uh, she was a club singer, and and I wrote alcoholic. Because she, you know, she's in a club in Miami. Nerd alert! Go ahead. This is how we're introduced to the present day singer. The camera's up top. We see in lights. It says, it's like some room in neon starring whatever her name, Alex, something Alexander Kane. It's raining, I believe. It's got to be raining. The camera's moving. It goes through the signs. There's a yeah. That was something going through the sign. What is that thing called? The skylight. It's raining. Camera comes down in the skylight. It dissolves. So you just like drop in on their conversation. Now that right there, you're gonna look at it, and then you're not gonna think anything of it because you see it all the time now. Uh, I'm not gonna say. gonna say that this was the first time it was ever used because it probably wasn't there's a lot of crazy things done by germans at the time and all over the world that we don't know about that don't get its due shine so i'm not gonna say this let's not go to the let's not go to germany let's not hey it pains me to say this but it would have been something to see that lenny riefenstahl do something other than nazi propaganda films because i horrible horrendous messaging awful but my god if you look at the pictures and that you're like from a purely filmmaking point of view fantastic images mm-hmm. i don't know did orson wells peep that lenny riefenstahl and say i like these shadows look at mm-hmm. this camera framing Oh, he might have. I just, I would, if only she had been American, 
And then she wouldn't have had the chance even. That's that's why uh, I wish that Jodie Foster had gotten to make that movie. Because that would have been an interesting film. Oh, she wanted to make a movie about her? Yes. Oh. I mean, she's a woman filmmaker, and she's she was really good at filmmaking. And in her, the 30s? Yeah, and her only oh. opportunity that she had of making films was, was to make the Nazi propaganda films. And so she was like, well... I mean, I don't know what her political views were. I'm not going to lie and say that I knew she was against it. I don't know. Maybe she was like, yeah, I love this. That's why I put my heart and soul into it. Or maybe she was like, I'm a woman, and they usually don't let women do this. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my shot. Yeah. and Not throwing away my shot. And unfortunately, she, she dunked it. But <laughs> you can't say she dunked it because it was propaganda for the Nazis. It's like, oh, damn it, Lenny Riefenstahl. You are so problematic, but... Hot take, hot take. But yet, I mean, why couldn't it have... Why? Why did it have to be the Nazis? Why? These fucking Nazis. The fucking Nazis, man. Okay, well, the second wife is refusing to talk to anybody. She just wants another double shot. And she never heard of the word rosebud. So then we go to Colorado, Mrs. Kane's boarding house. Kane, oh, well, hold in, on a second. Before we well, go to Colorado, though, you got to go to the Thatcher Museum Bank Vault and tell me if that just wasn't like, it's so, st- like, you, you just felt how stark and cold this man was. Because this is his vault and it's this room. No, did you notice the audio? How cavernous it sounded? It sounded like they were, you could just imagine just this huge room of just maybe made out of marble and it's just so big. No acoustics. Yeah, that it was echoing and the woman was so stern and she's like, you can only look at these pages of Thatcher's 1930s librarian. Come on. And okay, then the well, and the shot going in there and how it's lit and everything. I was just sitting there like, man, this guy, he just went for the moon with everything. I'm loving it. Man, I wish we'd watched it together. Okay, so actually I had Mrs. Kane's boarding house before Mr. Thatcher. Because um, little Charles is sledding in the snow. And evidently, somehow, see, I lost some stuff. And so the Canes, Mr. and Mrs. Oh, Kane. I had to parent- look this up because at, at the time of my watching it, I thought, well, this is not very good reheat right now. They it, just sold their yeah, kid. There was a lot that wasn't good about the reheat. But they were they were they were sending their kid to be raised by people who could raise him in an environment where rich people will succeed. They weren't rich people, but they were getting money from a mine in Colorado. Yeah, but they pretty much sold it. No. So that's what I thought. So I had to read it to kind of like, wait, what just happened here? I didn't feel like that for the, for the regular movie viewing audience was well explained. Yeah. So explain it. So, the, basically, the guy there, he's a banker, and they're living in Colorado. The land is in 
Mrs. Kane, the mom, it's in her name. A gold mine was discovered and they're about to become very rich. And because they're about to become at first, you're led to believe that because they're about to become very rich, the mother knows that her son's going to have a lot of money. And so she wants to send her son off with this banker. Is that Agnes Moorhead? Yeah. <gasps> so that she will. Um, so that he'll he'll grow up and he'll know how to keep the money. How to deal with all yeah. that money because it was going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot of money. So she she's basically sending her son off to learn how to be rich. Yes. But then at the very end, when she's hugging him, because I'm like, wait, you get your son and you're just going to like have him go off. And, and at one point I'm like, oh, I, I mean, it kind of makes sense. But then the father makes a move mm-hmm. towards the son and there's some there's a line of dialogue and the mother holds the son close and it's it's implied that the father drinks and when he drinks he gets handsy and he beats on him yes. so the mother is really send like she's sending him away to learn how to be rich but she's also sending him away so that her husband can't beat on him now when i watch this as a lay person she seemed very cold and it was like she had made up her mind. She didn't care what the husband said and she was sending him off, period. But then when I see it through your eyes, then it's like, well, she had to be cold because she had to give her son away and she couldn't show emotion because otherwise the father was going to beat him both to death. Well, yeah, she had already made up her mind that she, yeah, that's why she was being cold because she was like, no, this is what it's in his best interest. He's going off. He's going to get an education. Like the parents who send their kids off to go to America now and before generations ago. How yeah. it was like, I don't. Or the, or the um, first American, Native American Indians who let their children be taken away so they could become Americanized because they saw the dwindling of their culture and they, they wanted them to be ready to be in the culture of the white man. But did they let them? I mean, did they want them? In some cases they, they did. Like in some, some cases, cases they were like, was... yeah, this is good. It's like your boarding school. And in some other, some other cases, I think it was a, they were just stolen. They got stolen. They were yeah. swindled. Yeah. Truth. All, all, all very sad things. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, before uh, before he's given away, Charles Kane is out sledding, and he's having a blast on his sled. He's just having a good time, and he doesn't realize he is. That's the last time he's going to see his mother and father. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well. Oh this wait, must- wait. Before we go off, though, I did think that, like, if I'm being honest, when I'm watching it. I knew how cold she was and stuff, but I did think that it was really bad because that dude was so creepy. Yeah. He was such a creepy dude who's like, yes, give me your son. I'm just like, 
you're giving him to a pedophile yeah. lady. Uh, yeah. What the hell is this? And then and it, yeah, again, it was the money. So okay. it was just like, um, oh, it was the money because he definitely did. I could definitely like put on my this is a creepy pedophile glasses to see this scene yeah. through. And it's like, oh, but what if all the things are true? What if it's true? She wanted him to learn to be rich. He was she was saving him from the sun. And that dude was a creepy pedophile. They could all be true. Did they even know about pedophiles back then? I think it was just men being men. Probably. In, in I think it was everything just, was men being. Yeah, men. Oh, it's just men being men. It's how you become a man. But Agnes Moorhead can be a cold woman like no other. She's pretty, I believe okay. she had no lips. That aids. <laughs> Not everybody with no lips is cold. <laughs> Okay, so he's with Mr. Thatcher. It's Christmas. Mr. Thatcher's telling him you're going to be rich. And for Christmas, he gets him a new sled. Okay, 25 years later, uh, Ms. Charles Kane is the has the sixth largest private fortune in America. And that 25 years later, that transition is fantastic. It's magnifique. Why? What makes it manifest? Because like I can't remember it verbatim, but I remember watching it being like, "Well done." Because it, it's like this montage where he gives him the thing and he starts a sentence, and then when he finishes the sentence, it's in the, mm -hmm. like time has skipped forward, and so you're That's in your true. mind. I forgot that you just you completely go with it, and you know exactly that oh, time has passed, and yeah, now he's older right. and stuff. See, I didn't even notice that, but that's right. That, 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 there's so much going on in this film that that's it's. I'm a contrarian. I would love nothing more than to say that this film is overrated. I can't. <laughs> yeah, it's seventy years in two hours, and for the most part, you can follow it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, now he's twenty-five years old. And, and the uh, Thatcher is saying, you know, you can have this and this and this. And he says, you know, I don't care about any of it except the newspaper. I, I'm interested in the newspaper. I'm curious about it. Let me see. He knew nothing about newspapers, yeah. but he wanted to see what he could do with a newspaper. Because he, I mean, Thatcher raised him. But when we say Thatcher raised him, he, w he went off to boarding school. He was like at Hogwarts, you know. And he, he was running with his, his Ronald Weasley and his... His crew. Yeah. He got his crew. Okay, so... Um, and, and his big thing was he wanted to look out for the underprivileged, the people who didn't have money because he came from no money, and he wanted somebody to be looking out for those people. Okay, then... But then, so we never even see again him and his mom. Like, we don't... No. Never. You're you just get you're just getting these little snippets of this guy's life. So it's not did did he go back? Did he ever have contact with his mom? Did he visit her? I mean, she you came into know. money, obviously. So what happened with her? But it's just you can either you can see it two ways. You can present it as, well, here's this guy. He once he left his parents, he never saw it, and that was always a hole in his heart. Or he did keep in touch with them, but he always did kind of have a hole in his heart because he was, like, taken away and stuff, you know. But he would go back and see her, but it was different. I think she started the Colorado's largest brothel ever, and she got really rich and even colder. 
Uh, she had to kick her husband out. Like, oh, to her the husband left, died to the of left. alcohol poisoning a long time ago. Everything to the left. She was like, I got my own money now. She basically made her own lemonade. And she was like, it's going to be funny and you're going to get it when Beyonce has an album about That's this. That's right. That's right, motherfucker. You just don't know ahead of its yeah. time. Yeah, you just got to wait until 2018. It's all going to make sense. Mm -hmm. Just wait. <laughs> okay, now we're in 1929. So I did my math and assumed he's about 60 years old. Mm. And he's out of cash. And it's the Depression. And he said, if I hadn't been really rich, I might have been a really great man. Oh, I mean, who among us? Hasn't uttered those words. Not me. <laughs> okay. So um, they are still investigating the word rosebud. Everybody wants to know, you know, this had to be like an epiphany. Rosebud, that has to have tied up his entire life in one word. So what is the meaning of rosebud? Now, if you do research online... It gets a little freaky deaky about what Rosebud was. But those have those claims have been dismissed by Mankiewicz himself, I believe. Okay. I believe that I read that on Wikipedia and Mankiewicz was like, no, it doesn't look maybe it doesn't have, have anything to do with it would have been a crazy coincidence it would have been a crazy coincidence i happened to just pull this out of air i didn't know that that's what that guy called it <laughs> I, I mean come on <sighs> okay okay well at this point, I started taking really scanty notes because Aaron and I decided we we're going to set the table and we're not going to go through every detail that happens in the rest of the story. So get ready for the skeleton of the rest of the movie. So we're talking, people from his past are talking to, they're trying to investigate the word rosebud. And um, there are stories from his past, stories about amassing his fortune. And then he had what he called the Declaration of Principles for his newspaper. His newspaper was called the Inquirer, not Enquirer, but it appeared to me to be very similar to the Enquirer, where they kind of went with rumors. Well, yellow journalism. Okay. But in yellow journalism, it's little or no legitimate, well researched news. AKA it's clickbait. It's on the internet. All those, yeah. you get to these, these highlights and you're like, what the heck? And you click on it and you read it and you're like, this is, this that is means nothing. bullshit. What yeah. the hell? Facebook. So Exactly. Okay. And guess so what? He, it, he made a mint off of it because the did. people loved it. He did. So his declaration of principles were pretty much, he was going to look out for the underdog. He was going to look out for the underprivileged, he was going to report stories, you know, like he was going to be an upfront newspaper man that you could trust and be proud of. At this point, he went to Europe and he's buying everything and sending it back. He gets married to the president's niece, who is Ruth Warwick, his first wife, Phoebe. who is a lady. 
She's yeah, she's high society. I mean, she's the president's niece. And they have a son. They do. And Charles Foster Kane the third. He decides to try politics. He decides he's gonna get into politics and what derails him? You know. Ever. A sex scandal. Yeah. Uh then his best friend, Joseph Cotton, is gets um disgusted with him and leaves him and goes to Chicago. Because he's a he's a theater critic. And he gets into his second marriage. Mm-hmm. Because of his second marriage and the lack of an operatic voice in his second wife, he has to fire his best friend because he's starting to do a negative review of his well, wife. Well, he built, he built his second wife, who was a singer, her own opera house in Chicago. So this part is, is based on somebody else. They said who, because so, whoever built the Chicago opera house... Like, there are a lot... It isn't just William Randolph Hearst. There's a lot of other people in it, like the McCormicks, like all these rich people. It's an amalgamation of all these different people. Mm -hmm. People Mm -hmm. always think it's like Hearst because of the newspaper angle and the woman who wanted to be a singer. But a lot of rich guys fell for the woman who wanted to be a singer. And so Mm -hmm. he builds this opera for her. He's like, you're going to go and do this. And she's, she's... not an opera singer she's not great at it and she and she kind of even knows she isn't and her teacher knows she isn't and she's a poor teacher and she still has to get up there and sing in front of this whole thing and everybody's there and they're all like clapping but they know that she's not good but they're scared to say anything because this guy he owns the newspapers and so, you know, and he's rich, so they just go along with it. And then his friend, Joseph Cotton, he's writing a review, and he can't even write the review because she's so bad. He just gets blitz drunk and passes out before he can even write it. And he starts to write it, and Wells go or Kane goes in there, and he starts to read it, and he knows that she wasn't very good. But then... He's like, I'll finish it. And so he finishes it and it's scathing. And then he's the friend's mad because you wrote it under my name. And then his girlfriend or his wife at this point is mad because he's like, how dare that your friend write such a scathing review of me, even though he's the one that wrote it. But he wrote it because he knew that it would sell papers. Uh, Yeah. So he's just ruthless at this point. And then yeah. the and the second wife tries to commit suicide because she doesn't want to go on this opera tour that he's making her go on. And that's a famous shot when he comes in when she's going to um to commit suicide because nerd alert, this movie was very famous for its deep focus, which meant that anything that was 18 inches away from the camera lens all the way to like 200 something feet back would all be in focus. And that was achieved by using all these different techniques. Cause remember we kind of talked about it in with the diopter lens in uh, all the president's men. Yes. But this wasn't a fancy lens like this. Everything was in focus, like how your eyes are. And in order to achieve that, they had to flood lights in and stuff because like, do you know how the, the focus works in a camera? 
like with your shallow depth of field and that all has to do with your f-stops yes and like your f-stops your, yeah and like if it's lower light situations then you have to open up the iris all the way up and when you right. open up the iris to let more light in you have a shallower depth of field right which means that something that's in focus like you hold something up you're only seeing the glass and everything else is out of focus like you can do right. it with your eyes right and then if you do like Ansel Adams's photographs how it's those majestic vistas and everything's in focus that's because there's so much light that the f-stop gets closed down to a little almost like a pinhole and the closer down into the pinhole the more everything is in focus so in order to achieve that you need to flood in different lights and stuff and then also they would use um what is it? It's something like a dual projector. Oh, an optical printer. So that shot is famous. They think that it's like a the like one of those depth of field shots that the movie's famous for. But that was actually the optical printer when he comes in when the wife's committing suicide. Because uh-huh. you can see her bottles in focus and him coming in is also in focus. And what they did is they on the first take they had the background in black so they turned off all the lights in the background and they just shot what was in focus in front and then the second take they made everything that was in front they turned off those lights so it was dark and they had the lights in the back and then when they merged the frames together it created that effect wow yeah you're on fire tonight guy guy i should have made another drink Whoo we it's not okay, me well, that's it's as, just wikipedia that's, that's as far as i went with the uh with the movie yeah he be- dies and then then i uh okay so now we're gonna go to our poc count and there were some yes so we i my my first one was the Help at the Inquirer, I yep. remember. Then there was a band leader, and I yep. there was a marching band, and I counted four in the marching band. Okay. So that puts me up to five. There was the maid at the mistress's house. Yes, Who later was. became his second wife, so we're up to six. Not the maid, the mistress. Yeah. the But, the, but when he got to the door and opened it, the woman was... A person of color. Yes. Then I counted uh, um, like three singers because there mm-hmm. was a singer and then there was a, I saw a drummer and I saw a guy playing the horn. Yep. And something, I have Trash's wife's room. And then I have the help at Xanadu. I saw right. someone. So, there, so the, the people of color were either servants or entertainment. And no one had a any lines or maybe the the maid might have oh the maid had one line she said hello mr kane exactly when the wife took him to the mistress's house yeah so they made the maid be the one that like put the the like ah see she knows him with the whole scandal Mm -hmm. pinned it on the park the bus on the poor woman why don't you that's right that's right so yeah that sucked 
Okay, do you have nerd alerts you haven't told us through? I like how you do the nerd alerts as we're going through the movie. Do I have nerd alerts? Yeah, I It's got to be all alerts. nerd alerts. I ran out of time. There's so many nerd alerts on this. In fact, when I was doing Tasty Nuggets, it was all nerd alerts, so I just stopped. My nerd alerts and my Tasty Nuggets, they're, you know what they are? They're just that basket of, of they're just an appetizer sampler. Okay. They intertwine very nicely. They do indeed. And so I left them to you. <laughs> wow. Let's see. So the budget for the film was $839. 700. Wait. 839. That's a lot of money back in that time. It is, but then it kind of isn't to me. So I don't know. I guess so. I need to look up the budget of, say, the Philadelphia story. Because oh, okay. here's a nerd alert. I didn't get to write it down because I read it when I was in the bathroom preparing for this. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so, Always on the job. So his first film, because, you know, he came out with the War of the Worlds. And everybody wanted a piece of the Orson Welles machine. So he was a hot commodity. And he signed with RKO. I think he signed like a two-picture deal. He got full creative control. And his first film, oh, it was it was going to be, it was some, oh, I think it was Heart of Darkness, funny enough. And he was going to film an adaptation of Heart of Darkness. And I think the... I think the studio had somehow shut it down before he even got a chance to really shoot anything. They were like, I don't know, what are you doing? No, no, we don't like this. So th that got shut down. So then Tolan, Greg Tolan is my MVP of this film because he told them, he was like, um, they started shooting and he says, look, you have full creative control on this. Don't tell the executives that you've actually started shooting because they're going to look at what you're shooting and they're not going to get it because Orson Welles didn't shoot master shots mm -hmm. and where you could go in. He was like Hitchcock. He was on that. I'm going to, I know what the film looks like in my head. I'm going to shoot exactly what I need. And it's only going to be able to be cut a certain way because that's all the footage that you're going to have. And so Tolan was like, they're not going to understand what it is you're doing. And they might shut you down. And Orson Welles was like, I don't want to be shut down again. So he's like, when they come around, just say you're doing test footage. Just say you're shooting testing footage. So this guy, he they were shooting like the stuff with Joseph Cotton when he was an old man. Um, like a whole bunch of that stuff. They all shot and they told the studio and everything, oh, this is just our test footage. Don't like, no, we're just, this is our test footage. We're just testing stuff. And so they, he ended up shooting a, a substantial amount of stuff that was just test footage. And then when they're like, oh, and then he started shooting. And it was like, yeah, the you know what? The test footage turned out really great, guys. We don't need to reshoot it. When he was able to kind of get them off his back. And, and once he knew like, okay, this is a full go. I'm going to get to make this movie. Mm -hmm. I thought that was cool. 
It was like, mm-hmm. ah, he outsmarted them. Exactly. So he there also there was like just a lot of different shots and stuff because of the the way that the news footage was and how it was those old reels. At one point, there's like a shot of him and he's on a wheelchair and it's just a quick shot. But he's it's a handheld camera. And a lot of this movie, it kind of reminded me also of that movie Vice that just came out. Mm-hmm. How he just lots of little cuts, intercut, using different shots and stuff. And I'm like, man, they're st- like they're doing this now. It's 2018 or mm-hmm. 2019 now. But I'm just like, man, this guy did this since like 1941. He just didn't. He just didn't know. He was just like, this is how I see it. I'm making it. So, like, you didn't see handheld cameras that much. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, like, shots of the ceiling, which he wanted. He wanted super, sometimes super low angle because he came from the theater, and it always annoyed him how, you know, you couldn't see the ceiling, so it didn't create that illusion of, like, yeah, this happens in real life and stuff. So he was able to, he liked, you know, having the ceiling in the frame of the shot so that people could be like, yeah, that's how it, it is. And he, and at one point, like for super low angle shot, I think when he's like with his second wife in her bedroom or something, mm-hmm. they cut out the floor so that the camera oh. could go down into the floor. Cause I, I was like, damn, this camera is really low to the ground. Is that when they, when he trashed the bedroom? Yeah. And he's going yeah. like back and forth and stuff and just all the different camera angles, just how it's like almost every frame of the shot is just set up and it's just interesting. It just looks interesting. And the lighting and the art and direction. When, at the very end when they were doing like the, the auction or whatever of all of his possessions. Yeah. yeah that was incredible. Yeah, it was pretty good. Um, how they use like jump cuts, uh, multiple narrators. Mm-hmm. I already talked about the deep focus and the pan focus and stuff. The sound, like the scene where they're singing the song "Oh Mr. Kane," yes, and they're having a dialogue. That's yes. not easy to do. I know. I thought about that at the time. That's pretty hard to do. And the fame critic and then filmmaker Francois Truffaut, he said, before Kane, nobody in Hollywood knew how to set music properly in a movie. Wow. Mm -hmm. Because he, like with the sound editing and stuff, it's very subtle. I didn't. I missed a lot of the sound editing. I'd have to go back again and, and watch the movie paying more close attention because I think a lot of the stuff, again, is, is things that we're used to in a film that we just take yeah. for granted. I think I fell for that a lot watching it. Um, and, you know, he. It's not, it's not that he was the only one to do it because we've, I've mentioned there were other filmmakers and stuff that were doing that kind of interesting filmmaking. But... The interesting thing was just how he basically threw everything in the kitchen sink for this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there and was the not and the not going with can we do this? 
but we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole thing about um, optical, the optical printer, which I kind of mentioned before, I think, a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was reading about that, and I got really confused. It's That's a thing. So it, you got two pro- two cameras projecting at each other, and they use that a lot on this film. It's, I was trying to, to I was like, I can't even begin to. Yeah, there are several rabbit holes you could go down. Yeah, and they have this thing, Chirus, Ch- gosh, it's C-H-I-A-R-O-R-O-S-C-U-R-O lighting. Wow. Which I forgot to look up, and I was trying to quickly look it up, and I'm like, huh. This technique is used in great effect in Citizen Kane in several scenes that mimic the work of Caravaggio and other temperous, tenebrous painters. Oh. Mm. So, I mean, the, yeah, the lighting is crazy, and there's just these shots in it where it's lit, and it's... I could see people saying their criticism of it being, hey, look at me, look at me. I'm making a movie over here. And yeah, I, I get it. But it's it's just pretty cool to think this guy was 25. Yeah. And the, oh, the makeup. Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about that. Go ahead. Okay. So the makeup in this, because Orson Welles and everybody, they age. Yeah. And it's interesting like years. because, like I said, I watched that Netflix documentary and it's got a lot of like older Orson Welles. And as he got older, and we have the footage of what he looks like as an old man. And so I've seen what Orson Welles looks like aged and what his body looks like and how his face looks and everything. So... It was interesting to see him because on one hand, I'm like, for 1941, like the makeup, like he does look old, but then he doesn't look, it's weird because on one hand, he does look like old Orson Welles because I know what old Orson Welles looks like. And on the other hand, he doesn't, he looks a little Mm -hmm. off from that. Mm -hmm. But then I think in my head, he looks like, what Cain would look like if he were an old oh. man now in that if Cain were that rich now his face would look like it looks then because he would have had a lot of work done on his face oh and okay. so he would and so in many ways it's this weird folding in on itself where mm-hmm. looking at him now makes him more relatable today as an old man because he looks like an old man who got a lot of work done on his face wow does that make sense yeah 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 that's heavy Mm -hmm. but they did this this guy the makeup artist he did uh maurice siderman man he did a lot of work because um what's his face was orson welles was uh allergic to the gum that max factor had Oh. And so Maurice had to come up with his own gum they would put on. And since this film was shot in black and white, like for Joseph Cotton, um, 
he they they do do this like reverse kind of thing and so when joseph cotton saw his face he was like what the hell you made me my face look like the rocky mountains and Mo- maurice was like joseph that's what your eyes see the camera don't see that it's gonna be fine i feel like black and white is is way harder to deal with with that makeup than color as they're aging and i read that um they used a lot of makeup on him to be younger when he was younger he was only 25 but he said he looked way better than he did as a younger orson wells than uh with the makeup as a younger charles kane like the makeup made him look a whole lot better yeah and he did a good job i didn't think joseph cotton did a very good job as old man leland I agree. When he walked off, when he got out of the wheelchair and walked off with the two attendants, I agree. He was very sprightly. And it's interesting. They use contacts to try to dull their young eyes. Yeah. But, yeah, old old Joseph Cotton was, I was like, Joseph, do you know any old men? Yeah. You needed to have a hip issue going on and a little bit of a limp going on and really sore knees going on yeah, yeah I, and even I, when I he was sitting too. in the chair i was just like this is no no joseph cotton but i did read that his wig as an old man didn't fit right and it kept slipping so that's why he put that stupid visor on was to hold the wig in place oh i thought also because it was to hide his hairline his like yeah, young he man still had hairline. A good hairline yeah 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 Okay, are those all the nerd alerts? I think those are all that I have in my nerd alerts. Okay, my reheatables. Okay. Okay, so I started with, remember when a sex scandal could take down a career? (laughs) Yeah. And then I I thought of Hamilton, you know? His sex scandal pretty much ended his career, but not with the dumpster. No. Dumpsters still going strong. And actually, uh, oh, I had the worst was <laughs> the singing of the second wife. Oh, yeah. And then when I when I did research, they actually had an opera singer and she had to sing off key to be the the wife singing. Oh. So it was a real opera singer who could truly sing and and she had to sing so that it wasn't so that had to be really hard for her. I would think that would be very hard. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes the aging makeup, just, it was like with Bernstein, when he had on the the skull cap and then just the, the crown of hair, you know? Yeah. There were a couple times it was just, it was just noticeable that it was makeup. Yeah. Yeah, there were times, I was like, oh, yeah, but... Very audacious. I mean, your first I mean, film, you're going to be like, yes, and I need to age 70, 70 years in this years. film. Right. A woman and a couple men. No problem. I'm on it, boss. Perfect. Okay, so your reheatables? Oh, my reheatables, the intro of the movie. I was just like, it's the. Mo- I thought the movie was half over. I hit pause and I was only 15 minutes into the thing. <laughs> I was like, what well 
It's like you said last week. Aunt Geneva said the first the first paragraph should tell you everything you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. So in the very beginning, everything you need. He he was alive. He's dead. Here we go. Um, I put the my makeup of Orson Welles because I of the the weird convoluted reason I stated earlier. All the visual information that we learn, how I mean, this this is telling the story. All the the different cues that we get about where people are in their lives, all the different mm-hmm. information, all the transitions and stuff. Just, I mean, just it's filmmaking. Yeah, and how epic it is. I love a biopic, and this is yeah. a biopic, but it's not. It's a fake guy, but I'm still all in. I'm like, ah, yes. Because, because you see him rise and you see him fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, my my bad, not so good reheat. Old Joseph Cotton. Yeah, I Just, agree. Oh, Jedediah. Yeah. Um, yeah. How he gets sent away to the creepy man. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. That, yeah, you don't. Ha- you're a banker. How many kids you got? Is it none? It's just gonna be him. Okay, I'm sure he'll be well adjusted. I know you don't even care that he doesn't have a a missus in his life. Yeah. Uh, when he hits his second wife. Yeah. Not 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 great. And what happened to his son and wife? Because in the newsreel. The newsreel, we see that they die in a car accident, but in the film, I'm like, when did the car accident take place? It, it seems. And me, you know, Miss uh, Dateline NBC and such, I'm going, did he have her kill? Yeah. And the son was was uh, collateral damage, you know? Yeah. Or it just seemed like that would have been a, uh, a, crucial, a major part of his life. Yeah, crucial point in his life. But then maybe by omitting it, it was like, yes, this was just how withdrawn and shut down this man had become. Yeah, that's He true. didn't even blink an eye when his own son was killed. Yeah. I don't know. I was just like, Ugh. Yeah. Egotist yes. comes to mind. Okay, well, my MVP, I have two. One was during the opera, her first opera, when Joseph Cotton sits there and tears the playbill Ah. into shreds. I loved it. I thought it was hysterical because you got to do something to entertain yourself. (laughs) It's really bad on stage. And my other was his declaration of principles that just went out the window. Oh, yeah. And Joseph Cotton said, can I have that? He's like, I got to run. And he's like, when you run it, can I have it back? And I'm like, oh, we're going to see that again. And And sure enough, Joseph Cotton is like, throws it in his face and like, guess you forgot about this. That's right. Uh, My MVPs. Well, I mean, Orson Welles. Yeah. Yeah. The hope. Yeah. He's this guy. The guy was just like, yeah, this is what I'm going to make. I like it. We're going all in. And. Greg Tolan, because he was just like, yeah, like, nobody really knew the magic that this man was doing as the DP because, well, Wells would just ask him like, oh, can you do this? And he didn't know that you couldn't ask and Tolan right. would just do it. <laughs> and we're like, this guy just made magic happen. Yeah. So he would try and not, e- yeah, just 
Oh, well, let's try it. Yeah. Let's let's find out. See what happens. And the narrative structure of the film. It's it's old hat now. We're used to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it was yeah, I I really like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you want to do your recasting? I only do one cast because I kind of, okay. I was, I, I did, forgot. And I was like, ah. I did one and a half. So my, this is just it, as uh, Kane, Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay. And I know that we kind of did already see Leonardo DiCaprio do this when he was in The Aviator. But there was just something oh, yeah. about Orson Welles, like seeing him and his mannerisms that just reminded me of him. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, okay, him. Um, for his second wife, I <laughs> I said Leslie Mann as the opera singer. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I was just like, yeah, I, I I I see that that could work. She could because she could be really submissive, but but with a streak of I got I got something mm -hmm. to give too. Okay, I like that. For Mr. Bernstein, I said. Don't we see what Mr. Steve Gutenberg's up to? Oh. I was like, I, yeah. can, I can see the Gutenberg. I can see the Gutenberg. For Jedediah, in keeping with my 80s bring them back theme, I casted Timothy Hutton. Timothy Hutton, we saw him, and he rolled his window up on us. Oh, we did? In Beverly Hills. Ah. We were on the tour bus. <laughs> <laughs> and you said, Ma, that's Timothy Hutton. And just then the window went. Oh. I love it. And for his first wife, I put Mami. Mamie Gummer. I don't know Mamie Gummer. You do, because she's the daughter of Meryl Streep. <gasps> and she okay. was in. Yeah. She's been in a bunch of things. Yeah, yeah she has. I, I, I can't. I think she was in West Wing. Yeah, probably. She was mm -hmm. in Mr. Robot. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, I have my Hamilton cast. Ah, interesting. So I'm going, okay. Orson Welles has to be like totally confident, self-confident, and so I went with Lawrence Fishburne. Okay, I see that. And then his Joseph Cotton, I had Common. <laughs> yeah, Common has cornered the male Joseph Cotton parts. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I'll go with that. And then my Bernstein <laughs> is Kevin Hart. Yeah, I can see that. It has to be somebody easily walked over. And then my Susan, I did Susan. I didn't do his first wife. Oh, okay. I had Kiki Palmer. Who is that, you might ask? I she was she was in Aquila and the Bee. Uh-huh. And she was also in Scream Queens, wasn't she? I'll bet she was. Yeah. Now, for my other cast, which is a totally Hamilton cast, like, just putting people out there who is the most self-confident motherfucker we know 
How would you like to have Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> as Citizen Kane? <laughs> I'm in. I'm in on the Samuel L. Jackson Citizen Kane movie. I know. I didn't. I didn't. There's get a not job. gonna be a motherfucking <laughs> war in Europe. <laughs> You're gonna do it my motherfucking way, motherfuckers. <laughs> Okay, I didn't have a Joseph Cotton for that. I do not want to go into oil. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was hysterical. That's pretty like, good. Like, if you want to do a, a comedic spin on it. So I had the Bernstein part for that would be Jonah Hill. Yes. Yes. And then for Susan, I had Emma Watson. Emma she Hermione. Oh yes. Yeah, like she could be. Yeah, she could be manipulated, and but but has a little bit of a backbone too. <laughs> so you have you cast your movie with Samuel Jackson marrying Emma Watson. Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did, and I defy you any motherfucker. Are going to get it. on that stage and sing <laughs> opera. <laughs> Come on, that would be great, <laughs> man. That would be great. That is pretty good. <sighs> okay, I do enjoy our recastings. Yes, they're pretty good. Okay, for my tasty nuggets, I stopped with it. It was kind of about William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies, because the rest of it was so nerd alertness. Yeah, there was a lot. So I have like, oh. Herman, he won the Oscar. He was nominated for Citizen Kane, but he won the Oscar for All That Money Can Buy. Oh, did any Citizen Kane anything win an Oscar? Yes, it won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. And oh, okay. There was also a whole like thing about um, authorship disputes because Mankiewicz... Mankiewicz was working on it with Wells and then Mankiewicz went off and wrote a thing and then he came back and Wells kind of had his thing and then Wells gave him a contract and it basically said that you weren't he wasn't going to get any credit and Mankiewicz's agents said hey you're not going to get any credit from this if you sign it he's you know basically doing an uncredited thing which you know they there were a lot of writers who worked in like remember we did ben hecht and he worked on a bunch of things uncredited right and then as the uh as the premiere and stuff the movie was getting ready to come out manko would say oh no no i want i want credit i want credit and they went through like an arbitration and and then um the guild the writers guild or one of the guild yeah probably the writers guild they said that he should be credited, and so then um, on the form, the credit form, it had his name, and then it was circled and put above Orson Welles' name, and people say that Orson Welles did that, that he made sure that Mankiewicz's name went first, and he, he always said that, like, yeah, I mean, you know, Mankiewicz gave stuff, and then I also kept stuff that I wanted in. Um, and then, like, I guess Mankiewicz just got angrier and angrier at Orson Welles over the, like, who knows, really? 
what yeah. happened and stuff. But I mean, he's he's credited on there, and they both won the Oscar. But okay. scholars have looked and because there there was a lot of behind the scenes and it was well documented, and also the trailer as a nerd alert. The trailer had no actual footage from the real film. And it was Whoa. Greg Tolan who suggested that while they, they shoot behind the scenes stuff and it's edited. So I would like to, to go and find and see the trailer for Citizen Kane. Yeah. Because it's it's got no actual footage from the film. So that's it's kind wow. of its own short that's kind of interesting. Um so yeah, there was authorship disputes and because a lot so much of it was documented and stuff that people say that yeah, they I mean they both wrote it. Mankiewicz wrote a lot of it and Orson Welles also, you know, substantially contributed to writing mm-hmm. the film. So there's that. Um I said he was allergic, the eyes. So the only thing, it was nominated for nine Oscars. It won Best Original Screenplay. For Cinematography, it was nominated along with That Hamilton Woman, Sundown, Sergeant York, Hold Back the Dawn, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Chocolate Shoulder Soldier. (laughs) Chocolate Shoulder. And How Green Was My Valley. And How Green Was My Valley won. And for the Best Picture, it was nominated along with Suspicion by Alfred Hitchcock, Sergeant York, One Foot in Heaven, The Maltese Falcon, The Little Foxes, Hold Back the Dawn, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, Blossoms in the Dust, and How Green Was My Valley, directed by John Ford, which won the Oscar so Citizen Kane did not win the Academy Award yeah yeah and but it's interesting because Stagecoach Orson Welles was obsessed with Stagecoach and Stagecoach which was directed by John Ford was pretty much um like one of the movies that taught him filmmaking that he screened it for all the different department heads he he watched it over and over again while he was making this film huh Mm mm-hmm Okay. So, yep. So, yeah, Oscars has a history of awarding um, what could be considered not the best picture, the best picture. So it's, right. it's good to keep in mind all, all you fans of Black Panther out there. Right. Right. <sighs> okay. Well, it was a fun ride. Mm-hmm. I thought um, I thought I did a great job in choosing it. You did a fantastic job in choosing it. <laughs> Good job, Ma. Because we have February coming up, which mm-hmm. will be um, we will do a month of a mostly black inspired movies. Yes. Indeed. Which, uh, that's going to run its course really fast. <laughs> Well, maybe not. Hopefully that thing is still on Netflix. <laughs> so, Aaron, next week yes. is next week is my birthday. That's Happy right. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to you. So what movie did you pick? Well, would you like to guess? If it's for my birthday. Well, 
okay. Oh. <laughs> but I don't. So take me out of the equation. Yeah. Do you have any any little tasty nuggets? I I would say I have an hour and twenty seven minutes worth of tasty nuggets. Oh, an hour and twenty seven minute movie. No. <laughs> no. Oh. I would say that the, the movie that I picked is a direct reaction to watching Citizen Kane. Oh. Are we going to watch? Wait, wait for it. Wait. Are we going to watch? Oh. <laughs> wait, are we still waiting for it? Yeah, we're rainbow circle, it. rainbow circle. <laughs> <laughs> thinking, 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 file not found, corrupted, file not corrupted. <laughs> Damn it! What are we gonna watch, Aaron? Well, I want to know what the fuck beat Citizen Kane for best Oscar. Oh. So we're watching John Ford's 1941. How green was my valley? Oh my god! With okay. my arms crossed. Oh. Impress me, Ooh, bitches. It's going to be a hot mic next week. How green was my valley? No, I was like, I just, I'm curious. I'm I'm curious. I'm like, this is Citizen Kane. Oh, but what, what best to, picture? You have to remember. You have to remember it was 41, and, and a lot of the stuff he was thrown at that people weren't ready for. Yeah, but the thing that really, that really piqued my curiosity was, I mean, it is John Ford. He's not a hack. <laughs> like okay. The man is one of the the cinematic greats of American cinema. So, I'm like, all right. Okay, so this is doing. a John a John Ford mm -hmm. joint. And yeah. Okay. Cuz I was thinking of Stagecoach, but I've seen Stagecoach. I okay. really thought that it would be interesting cuz we're getting into the Oscars. <gasps> and we're going to be doing um you know, Black History Month. So, you know, they, there's not going to be that many Oscar films because Oscars, Oscars so white. <laughs> so I thought that it would be interesting that we did Citizen Kane. And then it's like, but this movie won. So let's see what this movie is. Okay. Now, this is my question. Mm -hmm. When I was doing research, I saw a lot about John Houseman. Yes. What, what was the, what was the connection with John Houseman? Who I remember from maybe the 80s, The Paper Chase? Yeah. Well, John Houseman was one of uh, Orson Welles' boys. Like okay. They were, I think they, they did like, they started the Mercury Theater Company together, I think. And it was called Mercury because? I, I don't, because he named it that for okay. some reason. First like, Planet yeah. from the Sun, I'm going with. I don't know. That's okay. that was their crew. Like their that's their upright citizens brigade. Their second city, you know. Okay. That's their yeah. That's who their groundlings. That's who they're rolling with. Okay. It's their gang. Their theater gang. So their crew. Was, yeah, their crew. So he he did a lot of work on stuff. Okay. I've been Every, watching. Everyone in this movie did. <laughs> everyone associated with Citizen Kane did a lot of work on stuff. There's okay. no like schmuck in it. Was just like even the assistant director. I mean, the assistant editor went on to direct. I forget what, but it was like something like, "Are you kidding me?" The assistant director went on to direct that. It was ridiculous. Alrighty then. Well, I do. 
I do suggest you listen to this and then watch Citizen Kane because when I watched it, I was like, really? Yeah. I remember I talked to you last night and you were just like, yeah, I watched it. Hmm. Explain to me why this is the best movie ever made. So so people say this is the move, best movie ever yeah. made. And it's like, well, yeah, you can go and sit. I guess if you're going in, sit. You're going into it like I'm going into how green is my valley. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With a chip on your uh-huh. shoulder, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll show you how green my valley is. Motherfucker. <laughs> Alrighty then. I hope that there's a, a role for Samuel L. Jackson in How Green Is My Valley. <laughs> Come on. That was perfection. Come on. Come on. And then I was thinking for the Joseph Cotton role, mm-hmm. let's have Leonardo DiCaprio be a second to Samuel L. Jackson. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, all right, all right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they were eat. together in Django Unchained. Yeah, eat that, Tarantino. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Eat it. <laughs> okay, so next week, my birthday, <laughs> we will be doing How Green Is My Valley. Mm-hmm. Okay, listeners, thank you for listening. Happy Martin Luther King Day! Uh, enjoy your Martin Luther King Day. Happy birthday to ya. Happy, Happy birthday. birthday to ya. Happy, Happy birthday. birthday. Bye bye.